Well, this morning I'm going to read um, from the book of John, chapter 9, verses 1 through 41. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, He is of age. Ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, 
But as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. This is the word of God. If, if you're into studying the history of Western thought and, and enjoy it as much as I do, uh, you would know that the, the 17th and 18th centuries, at least in the West, are often referred to as the Age of Enlightenment. And that's a time when human reason, so it's said, uh, began to, to escape the dark confines of religion in determining what's true about God, about ourselves, and about the world that we live in. Hello to science and rational philosophy and good morning to human autonomy. Many Enlightenment thinkers more or less said that, that truth and beauty, big things like that, are not revealed to us by God. Rather, we discover those things for ourselves. That was the big picture. And some people, I think, rightly call this the, the turn to the subject. Just think about that. It, by that, they mean that, that the ultimate authority, when it, when it comes to what's true and not true, doesn't lie outside of us, uh, but it's found within us. If you want to discover what's true, you have to look no further than deep within you. And that meant that, that theology, which is just a big word for the study of God, <laughs> the study of God, isn't something that we do from above anymore in the sense that we start with what God says is true about himself. Okay, theology, the study of God, became something that we do from below, starting with our own thoughts, our own ideas, Whatever makes sense to us if we are capable of grasping something through the observational power of the mind. That was a big shift, friends. A big shift. 
profoundly altered the course of Western thought. But, but I would argue, listen carefully to this, that, that the impulse to, to privilege our own understanding in the quest for truth did not start with the Enlightenment. The desire in our hearts to rely on human wisdom in that quest is far, far, far older than the 17th century. So maybe it got cultural legs or became more acceptable in public discourse. I'll grant you that. But that impulse, that's a lot older. Because there's something deep within every single one of us that, that, that wants to believe. What do we want to believe? That we are capable of figuring out what is true with no other tools than our own human wisdom and understanding and reason. Children want that. I'd like to be in charge. Right? Adults want that. Lord, why would you do this? This makes no sense. The desire to know what is true, including the truth about God, is both necessary and good. Let's get that straight, okay? And in fact, that's, that's hardwired into us by our creator to lead us back to him. The problem is where we go looking to find it. The problem isn't that we, we want to know what is true about God, about ourselves, about the world we live in. Where we get off the rails is where we go looking, our starting point when it comes to finding that. One of the most frequently repeated words in here, I hope you caught it, we've had two weeks now to listen to this passage, is the word no. And that's not accidental, because this entire chapter really wrestles with how do we know the truth about God? Okay, especially the identity of Jesus, and, and, and what tends to get in the way of that? So, so the whole story begins with a single blind man, one blind man. But by the end of it, if you're listening carefully, we, we start to realize this guy wasn't alone. There, there was a whole group of people who couldn't see. Not because they lacked physical sight, Okay, but because they were spiritually unable to see Jesus for who he really is. One blind man, so we think. But there was a whole group of people who were blind. And we focused last Sunday on the experience of the blind guy, at least the one who started out blind, and how Jesus gives sight to those who are blind but both spiritually and physically. And when we'll circle back to his response at the end today, but we're going to spend most of our time lingering on the experience of a group called the Pharisees and how Jesus blinds those who think they can see. And lest any of us wade into this thinking Pharisees, wherever they show up in the Bible, are bad guys. You know, cue the... the Cue your favorite bad guy soundtrack. You know, and we're over here rooting for King Jesus. 
be careful. <laughs> be careful because I look in my own heart, talk to you guys, and what do we collectively begin to see? That, that we all love to lean on our own understanding. You love to lean on your own understanding. I mean, we, maybe we could argue about this after the service. Say, who loves to lean on their own understanding more, right? We all love to do that. It's not just that we're prone to do it. We love to do that. We, we fancy ourselves. We kind of flatter ourselves. I'm an excellent arbiter of the truth. When in reality, we're nothing of the sort. Why not? Because until we exchange the darkness of human reason for the light of faith-seeking understanding, we will never see Jesus for who he really is. You and I will remain spiritually blind. And you might as well just cover your eyes. I, I, wish, I wish I could hand out to all of you one of those sleeping masks right now so we could just feel that darkness, remember that darkness, and recognize that that is a physical picture of how utterly blind we are to Jesus absent the help of the Holy Spirit. Verse 39, look there. This is the, really the point of the whole. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. It's that second part I want us to think about today. Okay? How, how, do those who are so convinced they know the truth about God remain blind? Why is it easy for churches like ours to have all kinds of blind people in them? What, what gets in the way, in other words, of people like us seeing Jesus for who he really is? What, what's at risk of blinding our eyes? I think there's at least five answers in John 9. There are more, but we only have time for five. Here's, here's the first answer. What gets in the way of us seeing Jesus? First, we reduce the law of God to works we can achieve. We reduce the law of God to works we can achieve. Think, think about this, okay? After Jesus heals the blind man, his, his neighbors, who are pretty well amazed, bring the guy to the Pharisees, the local Jewish religious leaders. And, and John adds at this point a, a crucial piece of background information. Look at verse 14. Now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. In Exodus 20:18, the Lord told his people through Moses, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, for in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Now at face value, that, that command was pretty straightforward, right? Don't treat the Sabbath, the seventh day, like every other day. Okay, express your reliance on me through resting from your normal labor. Was that good? Yes, absolutely. The problem was that the Pharisees took that general principle and they created 
39 classes of prohibited activities, including kneading dough to make food. And that's why John adds in verse 14, that important detail, it was the Sabbath when Jesus made or kneaded the mud. He violated one of those classes. But what was the problem with the Pharisees doing that? It wasn't a good thing. Why not? Because the law was designed to reveal Israel's dependence on God. That's what the Sabbath was about. And and to kindle her trust in the Lord. And and by reducing that Sabbath law to 39 specific classes, the the Jews really did what? They they turned it, they twisted it into a list of man-made rules that your average Jew could readily keep. I got it. Done. And I would argue that's really easy to do today. Okay? For example, we pat ourselves on the back for not watching pornography or films with nudity. And we forget that the Lord's claim on our life is far more comprehensive than that. Philippians 4.8, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Or, Or maybe we tell ourselves, I am so good on the sixth commandment. I've, I've never committed adultery. I don't plan to commit adultery. Forgetting what? Matthew 5, 28. Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What, what's my point in bringing up those examples? That, that God's actual laws are always more difficult to keep than your own. Or my own. Or any laws that we could create. Why? Because God's laws go after our hearts, don't they? And they reveal just how much we, we need a savior. Not, not how good we are, not how, got it, no. How much we need a savior, somebody who can make us right with God and then empower us to do what apart from God we're never able to do. It's really easy to do exactly what these Pharisees did with the Sabbath and add all kinds of external criteria to God's word, just like they did. And then evaluate somebody else's relationship with God as they evaluated Jesus based on whether they what? They dress like you or talk like us or parent like you or eat like you or vote like you or keep their grass in their front yard like you. And and all of those, let's be honest, all of those, conscious and unconscious, because we're not always even aware when we're doing that, you know, additions to God's law, they don't just destroy our relationship with other people and create divisions in the church, they actually blind us to seeing the truth about God. Think about this, okay? To the degree that you turn the law of God into something you can keep. 
something, something you have achieved unlike all of those other people out there. That's what the Pharisees were doing. You will stop seeing yourself for who you really are. A sinner who needs a savior. And you will stop seeing Jesus for who he really is. Okay, the son of God who came to rescue you from your sins. You'll stop seeing both those things. That the Pharisees were so preoccupied with trying to save themselves, which means what? Earning forgiveness, love from God through obedience to God. They, they, they didn't even recognize Jesus as a result. Even though he was standing right in front of them. Why not? Why not? Because they weren't looking for a Messiah like that. Because they didn't think they needed one. See? Wait, what? I mean, it's not like we need God to come in human flesh and deliver us from sin. We've got this. The Romans are the problem. We can keep God's law at least more than we disobey it. We're good, unlike this sinner over here who, who keeps healing people on the Sabbath. Gosh. What a piece of work he is. Blindness. Friend, if you ever reduce the law of God to a work you can achieve, you will never see Jesus. Verse 16, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath, period. Second, why do we stay blind? We choose to fear man instead of God. This is a big one, friends. This is a big one. Look at verse 19. The Pharisees summoned the parents of the man Jesus healed. Okay, to determine whether this guy really had been born blind. (laughs) Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he see? Verse 20, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we don't know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Talk to him. Was that an honest answer? No. No, that, that was a calculated answer. That, that was a politically correct answer. Okay, that, that was an answer carefully crafted to minimize offense and maximize social capital and the approval of men. And verse 22 reveals the root issue. This is so helpful. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. And in case you're not aware, unlike today, that didn't mean that you just drove five miles down to the next synagogue and ranted on how poorly the first synagogue treated you and joined a new synagogue. That was a devastating sentence. Because to be kicked out of a synagogue was to be utterly alienated from your entire community for the rest of your life. And it's good to remember that, friends, because 
the most important things going on in this whole story haven't really changed. To, to confess Jesus as your Savior and to follow him accordingly has always meant choosing a, a countercultural path of enmity and scorn. It's always meant that. And sadly, many people decide today it's not worth the cost. That, that approval from men in general or, or maybe approval from one person in particular matters more than the smile of God. It's a bitter exchange. If I refuse his sexual advances, I might never get married. So we decide the, the truth is that the sexual morality of the Lord insists upon in his word is, is culturally bound and outmoded. If I tell her what I really think about her lifestyle, I could lose that friendship. So I'll just keep my real thoughts to myself. <laughs> Instead of humbly or graciously contending for the truth, we start to hedge or compromise or, or just go silent. Get concerned over what people will think or how people will respond. It, it twists and it corrupts so much of what we decide or tell ourselves is true. If you would see the truth about God, my friend, and keep your spiritual eyes open to his character and ways, you must choose every day of your life to fear him above all other things. You have to choose that. Because if not, you'll inevitably blind yourself and the people around you to who he is and what he requires of us as his people because you've already written off any acts of obedience that have negative social repercussions. We blind ourselves to the truth when we fear man more than God. Third, we deny evidence that fails to support our conclusion. <laughs> I only laugh because it, it's easy to see in others. It's harder to see in ourselves, right? John adds a key detail at the beginning of verse 18. Look there. The Jews did not believe that he had been born blind and received his sight until... They call the parents of the man who had received his sight. What, why has he set it up that way? What, what is their intellectual starting point? Think about that. What's their starting point? The miracle didn't happen. There's, there's no way Jesus opened his eyes. Why not? Look at verse 24. We know because we know that this man is a sinner. We've already concluded that. Translation, Jesus has nothing to do with God. He's not from God or connected with God in, in any way. And so their questions to all these people feign a genuine desire to know the truth about Jesus' person and work. But, but there's, there's no underlying objectivity, is there? What, what are they doing? They're just looking for data. It's got to be out here somewhere to support their conclusion. Leon Morris says it this way. The first tact attempted by Jesus' enemies 
is that of discrediting the miracle. Notice that. They held that Jesus did not come from God. That was the starting point. It followed that he could not have done a miracle. (laughs) Therefore, this miracle did not happen. They do not examine the evidence with open minds, but in the light of their firmly held prejudices, seek to discover the flaw that they feel must surely be present here somewhere. Have you ever noticed uh, in a relationship with a, a spouse or a sibling or, or maybe a close friend that whatever you decide is true about that person before you interact with that person has a profound effect on what you actually see when you're with that person? It's, it's an expectation thing, right? If I, if I decide in my mind, my wife hates me and is a terrible jerk. See, I can use her because she's so not, right? But if I decided that in my mind, then when I'm with her, every little word that could, was that, was that a dig? Oh yeah, it was a dig. Could, could that have been a dig? No way. We know, I know, that was a dig. I, I'm, I'm just, talk about this in our parenting, right? We, we're walking around just waiting to be offended. Why? Because I've already decided you're a terrible person. So that's all I'm going to see. I've already made my decision about who you are, and I'm only open to evidence that confirms my initial assumption, and therefore that is all that I will find. We do that all the time, friends. We do not to our credit, right? And we can do the exact same thing. Think about this when it comes to our search for the truth about God. Same thing. We we like to think we're objective. In reality, we're nothing of the sort. We're nothing of the sort. We're not objective. Every single one of us is born into this life wanting to be God. Okay? It's why you don't have to teach kids to disobey. I've never had a parent come to me and say, you know, I've got a problem, Pastor. My kids are just obeying too much. I'd like them to be more relatable, well-rounded. Can you give me some tips on how to make them dis... No. No, we, we want to be in charge. We want to be our own authority. We don't want to submit to anyone else. And when we get older, we just polish it a little bit. The point of John 9, friends, is that that the natural man, and do not exclude yourself, the natural man never approaches God with an open mind. Think about that. You can't. The Pharisees didn't. I don't. You don't. We can't. Why not? Because we start with a sinful heart. A sinful nature. A heart that does not want Jesus to be God. And lo and behold, concludes he is not God. Because that would what? Mean we have to stop living as if we are God. We sense that. Deny, deny, deny. It doesn't matter what's true. We, we wade into spiritual conversations hearing only what we want to hear. 
Because our, our, our entire discernment about the things of God has been ravaged by sin. Corrupted. Romans 1.21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. You can see this in John 9. Sometimes we, we try to hide our deep-seated antagonism to God's authority in a veil, a cloak of uncertainty. What do I mean by this? The answer is that there are no answers. Only questions. And so as Paul says in in 2 Timothy 3.7, we find ourselves always learning, but never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Why not? Because like the Pharisees, we, we refuse to accept even the simplest explanation for the signs Jesus performed and, and the words that he spoke because we just don't like the moral implications. They, they all confirm God is real, friends. That, that we're all accountable to him. That, that faith in Christ is our only hope for salvation from the wrath of God. And when finding an intellectually satisfactory alternative proves for us, as for them, maddeningly difficult, what do we settle for? Just spinning our wheels. Let's ask it again. Let's ask it again. The answer is, there is no answer. And we'll actually accept anything as, as true. Here's the, the humbling part. We'll believe anything is true as long as it keeps us from having to step off the throne of our heart. We're not objective. And when the Pharisees asked the man, where where do we see this in here? For the second time in verse 26, what did Jesus do to you? How did he open your eyes? The the man's reply, just it cuts like a knife through the postmodern fog. (laughs) Verse 27, he answered them, I've told you already. And you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Why why do you keep asking the same questions over and over and over again? Are, are Are you looking for a different answer? Do you want a different answer? He recognized the impurity of their motives, didn't he? (laughs) They didn't want to know what was actually true. They wanted him to say something that would line up with what they had already decided must be true about Jesus. And only the Holy Spirit, friend, can open a mind like that, a mind like ours, and, and remove that spiritual bias because that's what it is, that, that willful blindness that keeps us from seeing Jesus for who he is. Our blindness to the glory of God is not an innocent thing. It's a chosen thing. It's a culpable thing because we don't want him to be God. So we look for evidence to support that conclusion. Fourth reason we stay blind to Jesus We fail to heed the witness of God's word. 
You notice the Pharisees claimed, verse 28, that God's word was on their side. Do you notice that? In, in denying the deity of Christ, verse 28, and they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but, but as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. Here, here's the problem with that. There's a massive problem with that. What, what is that? If you read the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, the books of Moses, everything in them, friends, points to Jesus. What did Jesus say to his disciples on the road to Emmaus? Luke 24, 25. Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures everything concerning himself. What's the point? If you humbly read the word of God, friend, if you humbly read it, okay, not, not imposing an, an anti-supernatural grid on it or a history of religions grid on it, but, but taking it at, at face value. Reading God's word in its own terms and in its own categories, then you will recognize that Jesus is the centerpiece of this entire story. And so if you want to sincerely weigh the claims of Christianity, and I mean that, if you... If you if you want to sincerely weigh the claims of Christianity, not, not just the, yeah, I showed up to church and that keeps my parents off my back, or I showed up to church and made my boyfriend happy. If, if, if you, friend, if you want to sincerely weigh the claims of Christianity, then this is what you need to do. Do not hold the Bible at arm's length. And when you read it, don't, don't look for contradictions or objections to the faith. Listen to what the Bible says about Jesus. Do that. Here's the last way we blind ourselves. We prefer the irrationality of unbelief to the rationality of faith. We need to think for a while about this one. <laughs> We prefer the irrationality of unbelief to the rationality of faith. Look at verse 30. Because this verse is dripping with sarcasm. It's just falling off the page. The Pharisees keep denying that Jesus has anything to do with God, which we've seen from the first four points that we are so prone to be like them, every respect. And in response, the healed man declares, what? Verse 30, why this is an amazing thing. This guy had guts. <laughs> Did you realize that? <laughs> Never educated. You see Jesus, you start getting bold. This is an amazing thing. 
you don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes? Really? You know, on the, on the, outs, on the outside of the Christian faith, from the outside, people who believe Jesus is God. They look like people who, who have just taken a leap in the dark. Do you realize that? If you're a Christian, to many of your friends, if they actually know you're a Christian, they should. <laughs> you look like you've just taken a leap in the dark. A big one. You're devoting your entire life to serving someone you can't see. Who supposedly walked the earth when you weren't alive. So you'll be saved on a future day of judgment that has never happened before. And and you're denying yourself a host of tangible, physical, material pleasures because you believe this Jesus is better? Have fun with that. (laughs) I, I think I'll just stick to what I know. One of the problems, if I could, if you've thought that friend, or I just want to gently push on that. Consider this, one of the problems with that assumption, that perspective, is is that it makes a massive assumption. Okay? You're, You're assuming that the choice to not believe in God or or functionally deny the deity of Christ, that choice, by refusing to submit to his authority, that choice, your choice, is a more reasonable conclusion given the available evidence, than what Christianity says is true. You're doing that, okay, whether you realize it or not. Th- consider that. And so consider this. Does, does it make more sense that, that all the intricacies and splendors of the natural world came about completely by accident, or that they're the product of an all-wise creator? What would make more sense? Does it make more sense that, that hundreds of eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection banded together to sell a lie? Or that they laid down their lives for him and testified to his glory because they could not deny what they had seen and heard? Does it make more sense when Jesus, when he heals the blind, or stops a storm, or, or raises the dead, or casts out demons, that, that he's God, or that he's a delusional man? And, and if God is, is infinitely holy and just, does it make more sense that he will weigh your good deeds against your neighbors and give you a pass? Or that, or that all of us will be found wanting in the courtroom of heaven? 
and that we need a savior who can, who can obey for us and die in our place and, and deliver us from the death that we deserve. What, what makes more sense? That the man's entire point here is that the, the most incredulous, scarcely believable fact in the entire situation is not that God would come to earth and heal someone who's blind. Okay, if Jesus is who he says he is and he created the earth, that the first man and woman included, out of nothing, then nothing's too hard for him. What's truly scandalous, what what doesn't make sense is that when confronted with a miracle, an undeniable miracle, that that only God could perform, the Pharisees still refuse to believe Jesus is who he says he is. That doesn't make sense. The, the, The Christian faith is not irrational, friend. Okay? It is grounded in well-attested historical realities that make perfectly good sense of the entire world in which we live. Okay, what, what flies in the face of the entire historical record of Jesus' words and deeds, John 9 included, what, what flies in the face of that, what, what doesn't draw the most natural, rational conclusion from all that, is a belief that Jesus cannot be God. Nothing is more rational in God's universe than faith in Jesus. And nothing is more irrational in God's universe than unbelief in Jesus. And I'm well aware that, that we have all sorts of reasons that we tell ourselves and, and, and give serious attention to, and rightly so, for our unbelief. We have reasons for unbelief. The message of John 9 is that there are immeasurably better reasons for faith in Jesus. How do we blind ourselves? One of the biggest ways is we prefer the irrationality of unbelief to the rationality of faith. Because it all comes back to where we started. You can't be God because I would rather be God. In verse 12, the man doesn't know who Jesus is, really, or where he is. In verse 21, the parents don't know how the man sees or who opened his eyes. In verse 24, the Pharisees say they know Jesus is a sinner. The man says in verse 25, he doesn't know if Jesus is a sinner. (laughs) He does know. He once was blind, but now he sees. The Pharisees retort, we know God spoke through Moses. We don't know where this man Jesus comes from. And the man mocks their supposed knowledge in verse 31 when he reminds the Pharisees of what they should have known about God's character and ways. And all of that makes Jesus' question to the healed man in verse 35 all the more striking. All this, no, no, yes, no, don't know. Do you believe in the son of man. Verse 36. And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Do you realize what's going on there? For the first time in the entire chapter, someone doesn't focus on what they, they know or don't know according to the wisdom of man. They ask Jesus to show them what they need to believe 
Do you see that? It's the first time, this whole chapter, that someone postures themselves as a revelation receiver. But modeling the humility of faith, trust, seeking understanding. Why do I say that? Because the man clearly cares about knowing the truth. He's not looking to make a leap in the dark. Obviously, he wants to know who the Savior of the world is. He wants to understand. But unlike the Pharisees, he looks to Jesus in an act of trust. Believing what? Trusting what? That Jesus is able to show him what he cannot see and cannot know on his own. That's the turn. And the Lord rewards his decision. How does the Lord reward his decision? His decision to exchange confidence in the the words of man for confidence in the word made flesh with what? True knowledge and saving faith. Look at verse 37. Jesus said to him, you have seen him and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. You see what's going on in this entire chapter, friend? The Jews did not believe, verse 18, and they were confirmed in their blindness. The blindest of their supposed knowledge. The blind man believed, verse 38, and his faith was rewarded with understanding. Do you you realize the exact same choice lies before you today? Same choice. Which example will you follow? The, The spiritual blindness of human reason apart from faith in God or the spiritual sight of faith in God seeking understanding. But the whole point of John 9 is that we will never truly know Jesus apart from faith in Jesus. Apart from a a poverty of spirit. Okay, a a humility of heart and mind that that lays down the pride of human reason and all the self-deception that goes with that and says, God, would you reveal yourself to me? Open my eyes to see you in the pages of your word. Forgive me, Lord, for demanding that you pass muster in the courtroom of my understanding. Help me to see Jesus for who he really is. That's, That's what the blind man does. And the Lord rewards that faith, seeking understanding with sight. The Christian faith, I'll say this again, is eminently rational. But God will not be known through human reason. He can only be known, Kingsway, through the humility of faith-seeking understanding. And and the true test of whether there is genuine faith-seeking understanding in your heart and, and the knowledge of Christ that affords, is that alive in your soul or is it not, is whether your professed faith produces worship of Jesus, love for Jesus, delight in Jesus, exalting him in your your life, in your thoughts, in your words, in your deeds. Plenty of people say they believe in Jesus. Oh yeah, I believe in Jesus. But only those who follow the example of the blind man in worshiping him actually do. The ultimate test of real faith in Jesus is is gratitude and affection for Jesus. And so the question today is not, hear this, 
whether Jesus will be exalted through your spiritual blindness. He will be. The question is, how? How will he be? If you know you're spiritually blind and you look to Jesus, he'll enable you to see, friend. But if you think you've already figured out who he is through the power of your own understanding, then then whenever you encounter Jesus or read the Bible or hear a sermon or talk to a Christian friend, your heart's just going to be spiritually hardened all the more. Jesus gives sight to the blind and he blinds those who think they can see. So confess your blindness. Confess it. Ask the Lord to show you his glory and then turn your eyes to Jesus because it's in the son of God, my friend, living and dying, rising from the grave that that the Lord causes, as he said to Moses, all of his goodness to pass before us. And as the Lord does that for you and for people that you are praying for, Christian, may they and you Say in the words of John 9, 25, one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Let's pray. Father, it is sobering to linger on this second storyline in John 9 and come face to face with the Pharisees and others, how instinctively, naturally, intuitively, perpetually, we excel at blinding ourselves to the truth about you, God. And Lord, this morning, I wanna pray, we pray For friends in this room who hear this word and they think, you know, Matthew, I don't know. I just don't know, man. Am I blind? Am I not? Have I seen Jesus? Have I not? I don't know. Some of what you said about the blind guy, I think I've experienced a lot of what you said about the Pharisees. I, I see that in my soul, man. Or the truth is all of us see that stuff in our souls because we're all fighting our sinful nature. So Jesus, whether we have a clear sense on our blindness, this we all have in common until we see you face to face. There are all kinds of things about you that we have yet to see. And so we as your people And those who are not yet your people and those who don't know if they are your people, all of us, Lord, we come to you right now and say, King Jesus, open our eyes and help us to see. We we renounce our beloved confidence in human reason and wisdom and understanding. And we look to you like that blind man and we say, who are you, Lord? Show me your glory. 
And I thank you, Father, that when we sincerely and humbly pray that prayer, you are not a God who hides yourself. But you are a God who takes our confused hearts and minds, turns our eyes back to Jesus and says, look there and see my goodness. Please help, Lord. Help us to see. Help our kids to see. Expose all the areas where we're still blind because we're doing it to ourselves. Thank you that no self-deception is a match for the power of saving grace.